And so when you hear the word determined or determinism, that's what we're talking about, that everything is predetermined because uh, if, we're, if we're just meat all the way down, if all there is is chemical reactions, then you, you, you have no free will in the matter. So C.S. Lewis, I have a couple of great C.S. Lewis quotes um, that he talks about this. He says, the first one is, Supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me, as a byproduct, the sensation I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism, and therefore I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought, so I can never use thought to disbelieve God. It's a... Uh, it, it's, I, I want you to think about this for a second because you'll see as we talk about atheism just how badly this worldview falls down in, in our everyday experience of, of living, of reality. Um, another C.S. Lewis quote is, if minds are, minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. So if, if I mean, it really has far-reaching ramifications that if we're just brains, and that is certainly what they assert. There's no exaggeration here at all. If all we are is brains, and our brains are just these, these neurons firing and atoms going and gray matter and whatever, well, do we even have thoughts? Certainly not, because thoughts are immaterial themselves. Immaterial being the opposite of material. If you're, we're materialist and there's no... Uh, th there's only physical things, then if you're an immaterialist, the, an, an immaterial thing is something that there, it does not exist in space, like your soul. So, for example, uh, an atheist would have to deny the existence of a soul and a mind and thoughts. I mean, thoughts are immaterial because if you think about, if you think about your mom, just think about your mom right now. Oh, it's Mother's Day. That's handy. Think about your mom right now. Um, and think about some memory that you had with your mom. What is she wearing? What is she doing? What is going on? If we cracked open your brain right now, where is that thought? Where is your mom? Well, clearly your mom is not in your brain. So thoughts, by definition, are immaterial. And so it's a, it's a real, real problem for the atheist worldview. Um, the reason that I'm bringing a lot of this stuff up is because most atheists really haven't thought this through. They're just, 
you know, they're, they're, not the, they're not the Richard Dawkins that goes around and does all these talks and all these books and everything else. They're just, they're just average people like you and me. When we have these conversations with atheists, I, when I was having that conversation with that new non-believer, and I was, since he calls himself an atheist now, um, I brought up this problem of determinism. What do you do with with the the logical conclusion of atheism is that you are you are just determined you are determined to get together with me tonight you are determined to have this conversation you were determined to say the things that you're saying you have no free will in the matter and he didn't understand the the term determined and how i was using it he i had to explain it to him and then he thought that i was just putting labels on him to, to try to, really to try to make his worldview look bad. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not at all. This is, if, if you are going to hold to materialism, then this is the logical outworking of materialism and there's really no way around it at all. And because he hadn't thought about it, he couldn't wrap his mind around what I was saying and he, he never really understood what I was talking about, and that I wasn't, I, I wasn't trying to play tricks with him, I wasn't trying to make his worldview seem, well, I mean, you can see the, the logical conclusion of that, it's pretty bad. I wasn't trying to pull any sort of fast one on him, I was just saying, hey, here's, here, here's what you hold to, and here is where that leads to. So, when you talk to average people that you're in, are in your spheres of influence, just know they may not know what it means to be determined. They may not know what it means to be a materialist. They may not know a lot of the things that I am going to be covering today, but I want you to be aware of them so that you can help them work through this. Because again, when, uh, when we talked about worldview as a concept last week, most people have not thought through their own worldview because they don't even know that they have one or what one is. And so if they haven't taken the time to really think about it, they're just picking stuff up here and there. They have no idea what they, what they believe. And so when you ask them in kindness, in gentleness, when you ask them about these things, they're probably going to be dumbfounded. But if you have these tools at your disposal and you have the understanding of, of where this leads, you will really be able to help them to, to think through and to, and to cause them to stop and think, oh my goodness, I, and they'll probably be resistant at first and that's okay because everybody, everybody believes what they believe to be true, just like we do, and they don't like it when someone might ask them questions that would cause them to start thinking, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't true. Maybe uh, there are really big problems and they might wanna guard turf right off the bat. That's okay because you're gonna hopefully have another conversation with them and another conversation. And, uh, and hopefully that stone that you're putting in their shoe will grate on them over time and they'll think about it and think about it and think about it. So I just want to encourage you and, and let you know so that, so that the next time you come up with a conversation with an atheist that you're not just assuming that, um, that they're going to know all of this stuff because odds are they're not. Okay.
So we already covered that. And these nice C.S. Lewis quotes. Isn't he great? All right. So another thing about atheism that we touched on briefly in the, in the week on objective versus subjective morality is that, again, by definition, they must be moral, uh, they must be morally subjective. They must hold to uh, subjective morality. There, there, again, there is no way around this. There are some atheists today that will claim to hold to objective morality, but if there is no objective standard, objective morality is impossible. And if objective morality is impossible, then it, then it by necessity breaks down to only our personal preferences. And that is a very, it's a very difficult thing to contemplate, especially because, again, we have this intuitive sense of morality. We have this understanding of things are actually right and things are actually wrong. And it's not just, well, I, don't, I prefer that you not rob my house. It's, no, if you rob someone's house, that's actually wrong in and of itself, not just a personal preference. But, and they, and they, I, I'm not going to go into the objective versus subjective morality again because I covered that a couple weeks ago. But they, because they, like all humans, have this sense of morality, they're going to say, uh, you know, um, evolution, they do this a lot. They'll wave the wand of evolution and they'll say, you know, evolution came up with morality. They, they do this. Uh, it's funny, I was, I was um, taking a, an intro to psychology class a couple of months ago, and here's this uh, section. They, they talk about um, the uh, psychology evolving, our psychology evolving. And I'm thinking, it's, it was just like the word was thrown in there with no explanation of how. how so how does this work? How, how is it that... Um, psychology evolves. And I, at that point, I wasn't going to say, you're wrong about that, but it's just so often, it's just so easy to throw in that word, oh yes, our morality evolved, this evolved, that evolved. Well, how? It's, they, because they will turn around and accuse us, There's a, there is an accusation they like to throw at us called the God of the Gaps where they'll say, well, you don't have an explanation for this and so, so you're just going to stick G-O-D in there and call it good. Well, turnabout is fair play, and they can't do the other way and say, well, we can't explain this, so we're just going to say evolution. We're just going to wave the wand of evolution and call it good. They can't do that with morality. I, I'm, it's, it's a significant problem. And so, again, know that Average, average people that haven't thought this through, you can gently talk to them about. So if you're upset about X, Y, or Z moral issue, can you help me to understand where, why is that wrong? And they're gonna, they're, they'll probably just give you examples of what's wrong, but you can help them to work through. But no, I, I, I understand that that's an example of what's wrong, but. Why is it wrong? What makes that thing wrong? And they're, without God, they're going to have an impossible time uh, explaining to you why that thing that they are very upset about 
and they're going to use words like evil, and they're going to use words like wrong and injustice and unfair. But if there's no morality, if there's no objective morality, all of those things are gone. And conversely, by the way, so, so is good. Good and justice also are gone if there's no objective morality. So it's a problem. Interestingly enough, more and more atheists who are very committed atheists are rejecting the Big Bang that they've held on to for a long time in favor of what they call a multiverse. Why? Because if there was a Big Bang, if, if the universe had a beginning, something had to cause it. Something, someone, unless, I mean, your choice is something caused the universe or no thing caused the universe. And it seems like the smart money is on something causing the universe. Um, because I've, I've heard it explained one time, it's, it, if the universe popped into existence out of nothing, that's worse than magic. Because at least in magic, you have a magician and you have a hat pulling the rabbit out of the hat. But in that scenario, you just have the rabbit with no magician and no hat, and it just appears. And of course, again, that's, that is, our universal experience is that an effect always has a cause. So they're having to figure out how to get around if the universe had a beginning, well, what was the beginning? So now they've gone to this theory called the hypothesis, not a theory, called the multiverse hypothesis. And what that means is, what they suggest is, there is a universe generator that is eternal, and it just pops out universes. It just keeps popping out universes and popping out universes until eventually we got ours. Well, there's a couple problems with that. The first problem is there's zero evidence whatsoever for that, and nor could there be because we would have, if, for us to find evidence, we would have to go outside of our universe to find this universe generator. But the second thing is, if there was such a universe generator, there would have to be fine-tuning on the universe generator for it to produce these uh, universes in the first place. So all the way around, it's, it's just, it demonstrates the extent that they want to go to, to deny the existence of God. Um, they also, of course, will reject miracles. So if you talk to them about the Bible and you talk to them about the, the miracles, including the resurrection that happened in the, Bibles, in the Bible, they're, they're going to say, you know, don't talk to me about that because I believe in the physical world and, the, and they'll say miracles are a violation of the, of the laws of nature, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, they, they reject miracles. Now, here are, some, here are some inescapable conclusions of an atheistic worldview. There's no way around this at all. Okay, good. There's no plausible explanation for the universe. That's a problem. Uh, they must deny apparent design features in the universe. In a couple weeks when I get into the, the week on science, I'm going to talk about the argument from design. Um, for the existence of God. I'm not going to get into that right now, but um, 
scientists recognize clear design in the universe, that it's so incredibly finely tuned. And what they have to say is, well, it appears designed, but clearly it's not because there's no designer. So once again, they have this experience of what they experience, but they have to deny it. It appears this way, but really it's not. It's not that way. There is no ultimate meaning or purpose in life. This is a really dreary worldview when you think about it. Because if there is no, if there is no God, if there's no uh, higher being, your meaning and purpose in life is left to yourself. And ultimately, if that's the case, who cares? Really, who cares? Um, Albert Camus, who was an existentialist philosopher and an atheist, he said, he was one of the honest ones, he said, there is but one truly philo serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Because if you have no ultimate meaning and purpose in life, why? Who cares? Who cares about your life? Who cares about the struggles that you go through? Who cares about the good that you do? When in an atheistic worldview, if you remember from last week, we talked about what a worldview encompasses. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. In an atheistic worldview, your origin is you're an accident. You're an accident by random chance. Defini by definition, random chance. What is your meaning? You have none if you're an accident. What is your morality? Well, it's whatever you choose because, again, it doesn't mean anything, and your destiny, where are you going to end up? In the ground. It's really depressing. So what, what people have to do to cope with this is just distract themselves and just live. And again, most people just don't think about these things. So they haven't thought it through. Um, but, but, again, that it is an inescapable conclusion. So another one is I've touched on that the, there is nothing immaterial. So our souls don't exist, uh, our thoughts don't exist, and, the, and even they will say, well, clearly we think. So they'll try to say, well, that's just your brain, but it's, it's obviously not your brain, because again, if you crack your head open, your mom is not in there, if you're thinking about your mom. And interestingly enough, uh, Gary Habermas, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago with the resurrection, he's also an expert on near-death experiences. And he's written, he's written a book with another Christian philosopher, J.P. Moreland. Um, I think it's called Immortal, where he, he uh, documents what are called veridical, or they're verifiable near-death experiences where a person will die on the table and they will leave their body and they will go somewhere and they will you know, see something. And when they come back to their body, when they come back to life, they'll say, hey, I experienced blah, 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 blah. And it's verifiable that the thing happened. There was one where um, a guy was having surgery in Michigan and his friend, he lives, he lives in Florida, but he, for whatever reason, was having the surgery in Michigan. And his friend was house-sitting for him in Florida. He dies on the table. He goes and he visits his friend at his house in Florida. And there's this magazine that's on the table. When he, when he comes back to life and he gets back with his friend, he says, hey, did you have such and such magazine on my table? 
at, at uh, my house when you were house sitting? And, and he said, yeah, those kind of near-death experiences. The problem for atheism is if that happens and those are clearly verifiable, well, it's, it's inescapable that there is a soul. Now, that's not an explanation for where we go when we die, but that is, it is really impossible to get around the fact that we're not just a body. If people are leaving their bodies when they're dying on the table and, and seeing stuff that other people are doing and can come back and say, yeah, there was another one, um, this woman just moved here from Boston and she had surgery in Swedish, at Swedish hospital. She, again, she had one of these near-death experiences where she left her body and she floated above the hospital and there was a shoe on top of the hospital. And um, she had just moved here and so once she came back, she told the social worker, hey, you know, I left my body and I saw this shoe and the social worker could go up on the roof of the hospital and see, yep, there's that shoe. So those kind, not, not the kind where I died and I met Jesus or, you know, because you can't actually verify those. But so no, no soul is a real problem. Again, there's no free will in, in um, atheism. We covered that sub pretty substantially already with determinism. There's no explanation for consciousness. This, again, it, all these are such major problems because this is our experience of daily life. If, if, if somehow the universe came into existence and then somehow everything evolved from some primordial soup, somehow, at what point did consciousness just begin? Because if there's just stuff, none of that is conscious. None of that has consciousness. So how did consciousness come from non-consciousness? And you have, most, most people will ignore this, but you have some like Daniel Dennett who will say, well, consciousness is an illusion. So again, a, a thing that we experience, we have first-person experiences, that's just an illusion. It, everything has to just be explained away. You can't trust your reasoning. I already covered that with the C.S. Lewis quotes where if, if all of our thinking is just chemical reactions, you can't trust that either. Um, there's no moral standard and there's no justice. So it's, it's so dreary. It's just, it's so bad. It's so bankrupt as a worldview. And so uh, with all of these tools that I'm giving you, with all of this information that I'm giving you, go to your atheist friends when you talk to them in compassion. Don't bowl them over with this stuff because probably, again, they haven't thought about it. But you, now you know, you know the ramifications of where atheism leads and the problems that it really has. And you can talk to them gently. You can ask them questions. You can you can probe these things gently and get them thinking about it. Um, all right, I'm running out of, I'm not running out of time right now, but I will be running out of time if I don't move on to Islam. So let's move on to Islam, and I want to leave time for questions um, at the end if, if you guys have any questions. So be, be thinking about that. So I want to start off with Islam and say, none of what I'm going to say about Islam is in any way disputed. It's going to sound bad, but it's not disputed. This is all in their holy books, in the Quran, in the Hadiths, in the Sunnas. 
this is all there. So, um, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll try to put up the resources. The resources was at the beginning, but um, there are really great experts on YouTube. David Wood is a great expert. Um, I had the privilege uh, a few years ago of um, my former pastor was born in Iran and he, his family escaped six months before the Shah fell. And um, I, he, he is currently a, a public speaker around the nation on Islam. And on Chrislam, by the way, I do want to throw that out. There is a movement going on uh, called Chrislam where imams will approach um, pastors and they'll say, hey, you know, we worship the same God and here are these verses that they'll, they'll show certain verses and then the pastor who doesn't know any better will invite the imam into the church and share the pulpit with the imam and the imam will have access to the entire congregation and, and deceive them and say, we worship the same God, don't you see that? So um, he, he goes around and he, he speaks on things like that. So there the, the None of what I'm going to say is is in any way obscure. This is all out there. You can find this anywhere. So Islam, first off, means submission. It means submission. You've probably heard somewhere along the line, Islam is the religion of peace. Islam means peace. No, Islam means submission. And it is the duty of the Muslim to submit to the will of Allah. That That is... That is the duty. And it's the duty of the non-believer also to submit to the will of Allah. Uh, there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. They believe that they're descendants of Ishmael. So they will call themselves an Abrahamic religion, um, although there's no evidence for them actually being descendants of Ishmael. But they'll say, you know, Ishmael was the firstborn. It was Ishmael that was up on Mount Moriah that was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. Um, there's not evidence of that. Um, Islam, it's important to understand about Islam is that Islam is not simply a religion. Uh, Christianity, we, the Bible will tell us how we need to live, how we, who God is, what God did for us, how we need to relate to God, how we need to relate to others. Islam is all-encompassing. It is a constitution. So yes, there are religious aspects of it, but it is holistic in Sharia is a law that is meant as a civil and religious law. So when, they, when you hear talk about implementing Sharia, that is for civil laws, not just, not just their religious life. That is for all of life. So that's different. Muhammad lived, Muhammad was the prophet of Islam. He was the founder of Islam. He lived from 570 to 632. He, he, um, he was a poor shepherd, I believe. And then he married a, an, a widow that was much older than he was. So he had a bunch of leisure time on his hands. He started going to this cave to meditate. Supposedly the angel Gabriel came to him and literally dictated the Quran to him. The Quran is supposedly the words from the angel Gabriel to Muhammad. Why? Because he says the Bible was corrupted. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, just, re just remember, the, if you talk to a Muslim, if you, want to, if you want to share anything from the Bible, they will immediately tell you it's corrupted. I'm not listening to that. 
Um, Muhammad had 11 wives, although all other Muslims are only allowed four in, in the Quran. Aisha was his favorite wife. Aisha was six years old when he married her. And he was nine, she was nine years old when they consummated their marriage. There is, the treatment of women in Islam is not good, to say the least. The, um, the testimony of a woman is worth half that of a man. There are still honor killings to this day if, if a woman is sexually assaulted and there aren't men who will testify in her favor, then she will be stoned for, because you know she, she was in the wrong. Um, Surah 434, a surah is a chapter. It's like we would say uh, Luke chapter four. A surah is just a chapter in the Quran. So anytime you hear a surah referenced, it, all that means is chapter. So in the Quran, chapter four, verse 34. Surah 434 says, men are in charge of women by right of what Allah has given one over to the other and what they spend for maintenance from their wealth. So the money that they spend on, the, on their wives. So righteous women are devoutly obedient, guarding in the husband's absence what Allah would have them guard. But those wives from whom you fear arrogance, first advise them, then if they persist, forsake them in bed and finally strike them. Some, some translations say beat them lightly, some translations say scourge them. But if they obey you once more, seek no means against them. Indeed, Allah is ever exalted and grand. So it's an issue with the treatment of women. Um, uh, the Islamic religion is also, um, they, are theist, they are theistic. They are one of the three theistic religions in the world. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are theistic. They're not pantheistic. They're not polytheistic. They are, they are theistic. They believe in a personal God. But they are, the God of Islam is Unitarian, not Trinitarian. There is only, there is, uh, only Allah, and he is transcendent. He is somewhat... He is somewhat unknowable. You certainly don't hear in Islam talk of love. You'll hear some, uh, some about uh, Allah being loving, but that is not a predominant, you know, it, it's beyond their understanding that God would come and die for them or would take on human, human form. In fact, um, that is one of the greatest sins in, in Allah. Allah in Islam is called the sin of shirk, which is ascribing partners to God, you know, like Jesus, because God had no partners and God certainly had no son. So there is, there, the sin of shirk is associating partners like Jesus with God. God had no son. God is one and that's it. So the holy books, as I mentioned, in Islam are the Quran. The Quran was literally dictated to the Prophet Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. The hadiths, which are the written traditions about what Muhammad said, did, or approved of, or, and the sunnah, which is the life example of Muhammad. Jesus is actually in the Quran a lot. They have a high amount of respect for Jesus. They think of him as a prophet. In fact, in fact, what's interesting is if you look at Islamic end time theology, it's kind of a, a uh, reverse image of 
what you read in the book of Revelation, where when you read about the beast and these things that happen in, in Islam, well, it, they, don't, they don't describe their person coming back as the beast, but you, you, you kind of see the things that they describe are the opposite of what's described. The, the bad guys in the book of Revelation are the good guys in their end times theology. It's a very interesting thing. And Jesus is apparently going to come back with their 12th imam and break the cross and declare that Allah is God and not, not the God of the Bible. Um, so they do, they do highly respect Jesus, but Jesus was not crucified. Um, it says in the Quran that Allah made it look like that Jesus was crucified, but somebody else was crucified in his place, probably Judas. So um, they don't believe that Jesus was crucified. Therefore, if Jesus wasn't crucified, he didn't die. He didn't uh, raise to life again. So like I said, the Bible has been corrupted according to Islam. Uh, in Surah 547, this is, this is you'll, you'll, if you start studying Islam, you will see some contradictions. So they will say that the Bible is corrupted, but here's what Surah 547 says. Let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah has revealed therein, in the gospel, if any fail to judge by the light of what Allah has revealed in the Gospels, they are no better than those who rebel. So, the Bible has been corrupted, but yet here in the Quran, it says, it tells the people of the Gospel to judge by what Allah has revealed in the Gospels. Well, well which is it? It's It's it can be a little bit confusing. So an apostate, uh, here's a little vocabulary word for you. Apostate is one who leaves the faith. They are deserving of death. Now, my former pastor, his family were really only culturally Muslim. So they didn't want him dead. They only disowned him and, and uh, would not talk to him. Uh, so there are, just like in Christianity, there are varying levels of uh, Muslims. The, the more cultural a Muslim is, the less they take it seriously, the less you're going to see um, the more uh, virulent understanding of Islam. Um, the Quran also commands Muslims to fight, to fight non-Muslims. This... this in, in our pop culture today, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing for us to talk about this, uh, for it to be talked about, but it's, it's really inescapable in, in their book. Um, Surah 929 says, fight those who do not believe in Allah or in the last day and who do not consider unlawful what Allah and his messenger have made unlawful and who do not adopt the religion of truth from those who were given scripture, fight until they give the jizya willingly while they are humbled. So the jizya um, is a tax. You'll hear in news stories um, when they talk about it, uh, Muslims coming in and, and subjugating a group of people, they'll talk about um, paying the tax or leaving or or being killed or submitting to Allah because that's what they that's that's what their preference. But there is uh, what is called the jizya tax that if you 
as a Christian, if you want to live in an Islamic nation, you can pay pay the tax and remain a Christian, depending um, depending on how how severe they're going to be about it. But but in in Islamic law, they do they do have the option of paying the jizya. Um, Surah nine seventy three says. O prophet, fight against the disbelievers and the hypocrites and be harsh upon them, and their refuge is hell, and wretched is the destination. The Hadith says, the Jews will hide behind the rocks and the trees, he said, but the rocks and the trees will say, O Muslims, O servant of Allah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him, he said. So it's... um, It's just like when you see among believers that there are some believers who actually take the word of God seriously and try to live according to the word of God, and there are other believers who really don't. In Islam, there are there are cultural Muslims who will say, yes, I'm a Muslim because I was born a Muslim and, and this is my culture and this is my heritage, but they don't really take it seriously. That was how that was how my former pastor's um, family was. And there are tons of those in the world. But the ones who take it seriously, they have to deal with these verses. And some will say, they will, they will pick other verses out of the Quran, these loving verses, you know, um, there is no compulsion in religion, and, and they'll pick these verses that indicate that, that um, Allah is loving and, and these sorts of things. But the thing that you need to realize about Islam is that there was a change that happened in Muhammad's life. Muhammad started in, um, in Mecca. So there are, there, well, there are three holy places in um, Islam. There's Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. It, uh, Muhammad started in Mecca and he really didn't gain ground. So he had to come up with all of these peaceful, very peaceful verses because he, he didn't have the high ground in Mecca. But then he was invited, years later, he was invited to come to Medina where there were more Muslims and he had, he had the high ground politically and in power there. And that's where all of these more violent verses come in later. So in Islam, there is what is called the doctrine of abrogation where the, the later verses chronologically, if, they, if these verses from Mecca say something different from these verses in Medina, these verses in Medina, which came later, abrogate the verses from Mecca. So that is, you, it's a tricky thing, but once you see what's, what is going on, then you won't, we won't be confused anymore of, well, the Quran says this, but it also says this. Their doctrine of abrogation deals with that, that it's the verses that come later chronologically abrogate or they supersede the verses that came earlier. So um, that is important to keep in mind what, uh, what is going on there. Um, there is also a doctrine in Islam ta- called taqiyah, which if, if you are in the... Islam has two houses, what they call two houses. There is the house of Islam, which is when they are in control, and there is the house of war, or the house of the infidel, which is when they need to keep the peace and, and, um, and talk about these peaceful ones. In the house of war, they are allowed to engage in what is called taqiyya, which is um, lying if necessary to, again, keep the peace. So that's another thing, another thing to just keep in mind. Am I saying that Muslims, all Muslims are going to lie to us all the time? No. 
I, I, I am highly in favor of engaging with our Muslim neighbors and talking to them and having these conversations with them. Just, these are just things to keep in mind as you do talk to them. So we're just about out of time. Um, so I just want to wrap up there. That was a lot of information, and I apologize for, for going through that so fast. That was really skimming the surface. If you want more information, there's a great little book. It's a little book called The Ambassador's Guide to Islam. Um, let's see. Yeah. There we go. Um, and it's, it's really little, it, it covers the basic. There's also um, answeringmuslims.com and the Act 17 Apologetics YouTube channel are both David Wood's material. And I will warn you ahead of time, he does employ sarcasm a lot. So if that bothers you. But he understands, he understands um, the Islamic mindset and, and they tend to be pretty bold and pretty, pretty passionate and kind of in your face. And if, you, and if you're sort of demure and, and shrinking, they don't respect that. They, they won't respect you, and they will think that, that you don't really believe what you claim to believe anyway. So you, it, it may seem a little bit off-putting, but th this is, they, they respect someone who is equally passionate about their beliefs as they are about theirs. And uh, people from the Middle East typically are, are passionate in general. So it's not anything to be offended by. They're passionate and they wanna know, do you believe what you believe? Are you passionate about what you believe too? Because if you're gonna be nervous and you know, they're, they're just not gonna respect that at all. So I, I apologize that I do have to wrap up. Um, please come and ask me any questions if you, if you have them. Um, that was a lot of material. Write that stuff down. Oh, mere Christianity, I just have up there um, on the topic of atheism because he really does a great job of going through the issues of, of morality and some of that base, um, base kind of stuff that, that um, atheists, that you'll deal with when dealing with atheism. I also want to, um, I also want to um, hand out this. I'll probably put it on a chair so that you guys can get it. Um, Barry has written up this amazing thing on postmodernism, and he wrote it up a while ago. Um, he, was, he was nice enough to send it to me, and it's really good stuff if you want to have a, a good, I mean, it's just, it's just this long. And so if you really want a great thing on postmodernism, he was nice enough to, to bring it in. I highly recommend it. So let's wrap up and uh, pray and um, get ready to worship the Lord. Father, thank you for today. It was another um, massive amount of information and I ask that you would help us, just help us to absorb it and, and moreover, help us to be wise in knowing when and how to use it with those people that are in our lives and the conversations that, that we're gonna have with them. Would you bring people into our lives that, we, that, that need this? Would you, would you bring people in our lives that, that we will be able to engage with wisely and gently and with, with 
grace and truth, just like you came, full of grace and truth. Would you help us to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves and to know how we ought to behave in every situation? Would you please um, fill this place with your spirit and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth? In Jesus' name, amen.